Section two of Six Radical Thinkers by John McCunn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter one Bentham and His Philosophy of Reform. Part two. The result of all this was that when, after the Great War, reform began again to raise its head, it found the Constitution still standing intact and indeed stronger than ever upon the ruins of the radical theory and buttressed by all the splendid reasoning apology and imaginative panegyric of burke yet if our century be not a step backward we cannot well deny that the constitution needed looking into bentham at any rate set himself to look into it there is one of his writings the book of fallacies which considering its permanent applicability to political life is surprisingly neglected for it is designed to expose not so much logical fallacies as the manifold devices by which privilege and monopoly and inertia and sinister interest in all its forms are prone to clutch if only they might postpone the hour of reform there are many sections in the volume and the headings are in themselves often significant of much thus we have the wisdom of our ancestors or chinese argument the hobgoblin argument or no innovation official malefactors screen attack me you attack government the quietist or no complaint snail's pace argument one thing at a time slow and sure and so on the constitution why must it not be looked into so runs his comment upon our matchless constitution why is it that under pain of being ipso facto anarchist convict we must never presume to look at it otherwise than with shut eyes because it was the work of our ancestors of ancestors of legislators few of whom could so much as read and these few had nothing before them that was worth the reading Perhaps his handling of the hobgoblin argument shows him in his most aggressive vein. I am a sinecurist, cries another, who being in receipt of £38,000 a year public money for doing nothing, and having no more wit than honesty, have never been able to open my mouth and pronounce any articulate sound for any other purpose, yet hearing a cry of no sinecures, am come down to join in the chorus of no innovation down with the innovators in hopes of drowning by these defensive sounds the offensive ones which chill my blood and make me tremble i am a contractor cries a third who having bought my seat that i might sell my vote and in return for them being in the habit of obtaining with the most convenient regularity a succession of good jobs foresee in the prevalence of innovation the destruction and the ruin of this established branch of trade i am a country gentleman cries a fourth who observing that from having a seat in a certain assembly a man enjoys more respect than he did before on the turf in the dog kennel and in the stable and having tenants and other dependents enough to seat me against their wills for a place in which i am detested and hearing it said that if innovation were suffered to run on unopposed elections would come in time to be as free in reality as they are in appearance and pretence have left for a day or two the cry of tally-ho and hark forward 
to join in the cry of no anarchy, no innovation. I am a priest, says a fifth, who having proved the Pope to be Antichrist to the satisfaction of all orthodox divines, whose piety prays for the cure of souls, or whose health has need of exoneration from the burthen of residence, and having read in my edition of the Gospels that the apostles lived in palaces, which innovation and anarchy would cut down to parsonage houses, though grown hoarse by screaming out no reading, no writing, no Lancaster, no popery, for fear of coming change, am here to add what remains of my voice to the full chorus of no anarchy, no innovation. I am myself, Bentham once complacently remarked, the most egregious and offensive libeller men in power in this country ever saw. And yet, after all, the noteworthy fact about Bentham is not that he can revile. There are greater masters of invective which in him too often loses half of its force by losing all its reticence. The wonder, rather, is the union of scoffs, flouts, derision, vituperation, denunciation, with an unaffected love of men, and a cheerful geniality that endeared this egregious and offensive libeller to every one who really knew him. James Mill has told us in his envenomed fragment on Mackintosh that Bentham's critics regarded him as a man whose habit and practice was to hold forth in a conventicle of fools and knaves, or both, such as elsewhere was not to be found on the face of the earth. Had such been admitted to the hermitage in Queen Square, they would have found a strange reversal of their apprehensions, for they would have met there one of the gentlest of men, hospitable with the kindliest hospitality, remarkable for the peculiar benevolence of his manner, fond of music and flowers, of little children and pet animals, and wholly unobtrusive of theories. No misinterpretation could be more flagrant than to ascribe Bentham's seclusion to misanthropy. The prime cause lay in his devotion to his work. I give my mornings to nobody, he says in his eighty-fourth year. I have so much to do and so short a time to live that I cannot abridge my working hours. For Bentham's work, we must remember, did not lie in the origination of ideas, for which contact with the world may have its uses and afford its inspirations. It lay in a method of detail, that is, in the working of what was, after all, but a small stock of leading ideas into their minutest and most logically divided applications. It was this that compelled him to a willing seclusion, and the prodigious labor with which his seclusion was filled. I have seen him, writes his intimate friend Dumont, suspend a work almost finished, and compose a new one only to assure himself of the truth of a single proposition which seemed to be doubtful. A problem in finance has carried him through the whole of political economy. Some questions of procedure obliged him to interrupt his principal work till he had treated of judicial organization. This preparatory labor, this labor in the mines, is immense. No one can form an idea of it except by seeing the manuscripts, the catalogues, the synoptical tables in which it is contained. Thousands of pages that he wrote, one may add, have to this day never been published. He once made the discovery that genius means production. His entire life is a comment on that text. 
but there was nothing here of the moroseness that lies in wait for the recluse it was from first to last a healthy nature and a happy life full of a boyish cheerfulness and an imperturbable geniality shortly before his death he put on paper his brief philosophy of life the way to be comfortable is to make others comfortable the way to make others comfortable is to appear to love them the way to appear to love them is to love them in reality and what perhaps makes this good will to men the more attractive is that it went with no high professions of disinterestedness he once no doubt declared himself in a mood of exuberance to be the most philanthropic of the philanthropic but he never seriously flattered himself on being a philanthropist on the contrary among the last lines he penned in his memorandum book was this remarkable well-known confession i am a selfish man as selfish as any man can be but in me somehow or other so it happens selfishness has taken the form of benevolence this being so it is time to ask a question if a man tells us that he is the most philanthropic of the philanthropic in one breath and in the next describes himself and with truth as the most egregious libeller that men in power have ever known if through a long life he flings missiles broadcast at his fellow-countrymen and ends in the conviction that selfishness in him has taken the form of benevolence is it not a contradiction but there is none here for it was not oxford nor the bar nor whig society nor all that he saw of sinecurists or monopolists that made bentham the great critic of things established far less was it a corrosive mind and an embittered spirit it was the fact that behind all his negations there was belief even from early student days there had been rising before his mind a comprehensive idea of the public good he had read in priestly when twenty-two of the greatest happiness of the greatest number he had encountered the same idea indeed the very phrase in beccaria and it had found confirmation in the pages of hume it met what was already in his mind it fostered his instincts of philanthropy it satisfied the benevolence of his aspirations it gave unity to his thoughts and direction to his aims he seized upon it firmly and finally and the peculiar cast of his genius did the rest by an analytic faculty that was masterly by a grasp of detail that has never been surpassed by an infinite patience of unresting labour he worked the idea out and he did not flag till he had wrought it into the very texture of theoretical law and politics it would be rash to say that this idea is philosophically speaking unassailable this we shall see in due course but even if greatest happiness of the greatest number be an imperfect formula it served to denote for bentham and for many another since a supreme positive fact the fact namely that in law and politics the final court of all appeal is the public good it was his hold upon this fact that gave their fervour to his combinations for in the light of it law had gained a new dignity it had become the science which holds in its hands the happiness of men and nations and forthwith against that background every legal abuse took on an added iniquity 
it defrauded the client of course and this was bad but it was a worse thing that by consecrating injustice it defrauded mankind it blocked the way to the public good and therefore in the name of the public good it had to go not without maledictions similarly in politics here too it is the believer not the unbeliever who is the most radical reformer this will quickly appear if we remember what the distinctive characteristic of political reform in this country has been it has been a movement against monopoly there have been other watchwords but the enduring watchword has been no monopoly it was a movement which already had achieved much the catholic monopoly had perished in the sixteenth and the royal monopoly in the seventeenth centuries but when bentham came to politics monopolies still stood the monopoly of protestant against catholic the monopoly of tory and whig borough-mongers against non-electors the monopoly of master against slave the monopoly of corn producer against corn consumer and some would add the monopoly of capitalist against labourer not to speak of what some ardent reformers would call the oldest and most inveterate monopoly of all the monopoly of men against women now it was monopoly that bentham attacked and we may truly say that nothing more became him than his manner of attacking it for he did not stake his case either on reviling monopolists or on denouncing monopolies he could do both but he sought also through his own message and through the message of followers like the two mills who in politics were greater than himself to lodge in the minds of his countrymen an ideal of the public good so comprehensive so impartial so reasonable and so satisfying that by its mere presence there it might unmask every monopoly as an obstruction and brand every monopolist as a robber of the commonwealth it is this and not only as some have thought its negations that is the supreme service that benthamism has rendered later philosophy may have conceived the public good more adequately but no philosophy either before or since has ever kept its eye more steadfastly fixed upon that supreme object it is for this reason that it has always acted as a powerful incitement to political benevolence in bentham the founder in james mill the propagandist in john mill the apostle it has nobly striven to expand the area of practical interests in words of bentham's own limits it has none other than those of the habitable globe in nothing is it more truly in the vanguard of the modern spirit even the greeks when all is said bounded their obligations by narrow political barriers as someone has said they were not so much political philosophers as philosophers of the polis and in the modern world it is only by slow degrees that the best of citizens have come to realize their duties to the slave or the savage even in our own day there is many a good patriot who looks askance at cosmopolitanism as a thing of vague humanitarian enthusiasm if indeed he be not ready to drop with burke the insinuation that lovers of their kind may be haters of their kindred it is to this spirit that benthamism is an antidote it joins hands with christianity itself at the breadth of its answer to the old question who is my neighbour 
it goes further for jeremy bentham the most philanthropic of the philanthropic is not to be satisfied even with the great human race in all places and at all times like j s mill he does not forget the animals the question is not he says putting the matter in a way that to utilitarian hedonism is convincing can they reason nor can they talk but can they suffer it goes closely with this that benthamism carries in it a sort of gospel of political integrity no philosophy has ever more sternly set itself against that fatal contraction of the political sympathies that comes in the insidious guise of loyalty to friends or kindred or connections no philosophy to put the matter more bluntly ever more resolutely took its stand against nepotism jobbery log-rolling favouritism and betrayal of public trust even as an ethical doctrine it is one of the glories of utilitarianism that it pled the claims upon private men of social duties and public responsibilities and in doing so it was but putting on paper the spirit of bentham's whole life no man has ever held his powers or his wealth more as a public trust and when at the end he bequeathed his body to the dissecting knife in the interest of science he did but set the seal on a long private life of public devotion we may judge from this what he would exact from public men in public life and in truth he has left us in no doubt i would have the dearest friend i have to know that his interests if they come in competition with the public are as nothing to me and yet these practical merits of benthamism come from the very source of certain of its theoretical difficulties it is for the sake of the happiness of the greatest number that we are bidden to count the interests of our dearest friend as nothing it is for the sake of the happiness of the greatest number that we are forbidden to tolerate privilege or monopoly or class interest or sinister interest in any shape or form well and good but now we have to ask a question where is the proof that by thus pursuing the happiness of the greatest number we shall produce or contribute to produce the greatest happiness this is a question that benthamism must face on one assumption the answer is easy if only we might assume that all men are equal then indeed it is simple political philosophy because it is nothing more than simple arithmetic to conclude that the greater the number of men made happy the greater the resulting sum of happiness this however is precisely the line of proof if we may call it proof which bentham could not take the dogma of the equality of men was just one of those anarchic fallacies that was abhorrent to him and in point of fact he poured derision upon it with a copiousness and an animosity which no tory could surpass and which burke or carlyle himself might have envied this being so the question that emerges is obvious if men are not equal why treat them as if they were why identify the happiness of the majority with the end of legislation why preach on a thousand pages equality before the law why attack monopoly in every shape why level men at the door of the polling booth why count each as one why argue as he does that a greater equalization of property is a justifiable aspiration 
it must i imagine be already evident that this raises a problem which goes to the roots of benthamism as a theory thus sir henry Maine, in this very reference tells us of a certain brahmin who had quite insuperable difficulties in accepting the happiness of the greatest number as the supreme political end on the ground that according to his reckoning the happiness of one brahmin was worth at least the happiness of twenty ordinary men one wonders if he spoke in all innocence or if he meant to convey just a shadow of suggestion that there might be elsewhere than in india those who live and act in the evident conviction that the happiness of one western brahmin is at very least equal to that of a score of western pariahs be this as it may our brahmin does not stand alone every critic of bentham must sympathize with him for once these inequalities are recognized as facts inequalities of endless diversity from crown and sceptre to scythe and spade where is the political arithmetic to be found which will demonstrate the benthamite solution as against the brahminical or for that of it the brahminical as against the benthamite the citizens of a commonwealth may of course be called units but they are units far from arithmetical no two of them are alike each one of them as bentham well knew has his own peculiar sensibilities to pleasures and pains and each is unlike even his next-door neighbour in gifts and opportunities in hopes fears sympathies antipathies estimates of men and things who then we may ask will venture to stand forward and undertake to weigh the pleasures of this poor man as against the pleasures of that rich man or the pains of this group of citizens as against the pains of that group or more difficult task still the pains of this class as against the pleasures of that class let any one try the experiment even within the small circle of his own acquaintance he may then better understand the task of the legislator who has to compute in terms of pleasure and pain the effects of a projected law upon the lives of great multitudes moral arithmetic hedonistic calculus sum of pleasures and so forth are phrases not unattractive they suggest solutions but one may not stifle the doubt that when it comes to estimates of human happiness or misery arithmetic in politics is not much more helpful than politics in arithmetic End of section two